0: So we've been talking about some of the things that are going to occur on the day of judgment, on the day of resurrection. We spoke about how the believers will see Allah on that day. They will see Allah after they are resurrected. Because as we said, it is not possible for anybody... To see Allah in this world In this world we cannot see Allah Even the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu alayhi wa Did not see Allah in this world We just spoke about the night When the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Was taken up to the heavens And Allah spoke to him but the Prophet ﷺ did not see Allah on that night. So in this world, in this existence, nobody can see Allah now. But after the resurrection, and the afterlife, then the believers will be able to see Allah. Also we spoke about the Hawd last week. The Hawd being the pond of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, a lake that will be there on the land of resurrection. And the number of cups around this particular lake will be greater than the number of stars in the sky. And the actual liquid of this lake It will be sweeter than honey as it's mentioned in the authentic narrations from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It will be sweeter than honey and it will be colder than ice and it will be whiter than milk and it will smell better than the musk, the fragrance that you have. These are all different types of descriptions given regarding that lake. Similarly, it mentions that whoever drinks from that lake, from that pond of the Prophet Muhammad he will never become thirsty ever again. So we talked about all of those things that happened on the Day of Judgment previously, uh, after the Resurrection. Today, there's another topic, another one of the uh, in, uh, topics related to the Day of Judgment and the Resurrection. And that is what is known as Ash-Shafa'ah. That is Ash-Shafa'ah. Otherwise known as intercession. We know that after the Resurrection occurs, every person ever... All of them resurrected and brought back to life again for the accountability. We know that certain things happen on that day. We know that everybody is given their books, their records of what they did during this life. Of all of their actions, all of their deeds, everything they did of good and bad. All of it recorded, they'll be given that on that day. We know about the weighing scale that will be done on that day, whereby your deeds are placed into that weighing scale. One side with your good deeds, one side with your bad deeds. And then the weighing is done to see whether your good deeds will be greater than your evil. We know also on that day there will be the bridge a bridge that is laid across the hellfire below it. And everybody has to cross over that bridge to get to paradise. So there are various things that take place and happen after the resurrection on that day. One of them is this intercession. There are certain events that will occur after the resurrection, and it will require for the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to intercede, to do the shafa'ah. I'll give you an example of one of them. When the resurrection occurs, everybody is resurrected, brought back to life, One of the things we know is going to happen is that the sun on that day is brought within a mile of the earth. And so everybody will be in absolute heat and sweating. Some of the people sweating up to their ankles, others up to their knees, others up to their chests. And they will all be terrified. Having been resurrected now, they'll be terrified on that day. So they will look to one another, and they want to get out of there. They want to get out, and for the accountability and everything else to begin. So then they look at each other, and they say, "Can you not see?" They say to each other, "What calamity we are in! What a disastrous, terrifying state we are in!" They say, find someone who can do the shafa'ah. Find somebody who can speak to Allah on our behalves. So that we can be removed from here onto the next section to whatever needs to be done. Out of this initial resurrection. So, it mentions in the hadith that initially they go to who? They go to Adam the first man ever created. They go to Adam Alayhi and they say to him you are abul bashar the father of mankind that Allah created you with his own hands speak you do the intercession but Adam Alayhi refuses. He refuses. He says I cannot do that. I ate from that tree when I was forbidden. And so he says, I can't do that. That's not for me. So he sends them to the other prophets and messengers. They go to them all. They go to Abraham, Ibrahim salam, But he refuses also. They go to Moses, Musa salam, He refuses also. They go to Jesus, Isa salam, He refuses also eventually they come to Muhammad wasallam, and then he is the one who takes on this responsibility, and goes to Allah in order to seek this intercession, for the people to then be moved out of that initial resurrection, and all of the calamity, and fear, and terror therein. That is one type of intercession. Intercession is basically when somebody speaks for you on your behalf elsewhere. On that day, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu wasallam will do this intercession, speaking on behalf of mankind to Allah. There's another example too. And that is right at the end of all of the events when all of the accountability has occurred, everybody has had their reckoning, and those who are going to go to paradise, now arrive at the gates of paradise. When they arrive at the gates of paradise, the people who are to enter paradise, when they get there, they find that the gates are closed. That's what it mentions in the hadith. In the prophetic tradition of the Prophet ﷺ, he told us that they will get there and the gates of paradise will be closed. So, again, they will try to find someone who can speak on their behalves to Allah to have the gates opened. So, again, it mentions how they go to the various prophets of the past they go to Moses, Musa to Abraham, Ibrahim salam, to uh, Jesus, Isa uh, they go to the various prophets and messengers, but all of them refuse again, until eventually they come to Muhammad wasallam, and he is the one who then goes and does this shafa'ah, this intercession, that he goes and speaks to Allah, Subhanahu wa taala on their behalves for the gates of paradise to be opened and then they enter. That's another type of intercession that the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam will do for the believers on that day. There are other types that happen too. There's an example mentioned in one of the hadith, one of the prophetic traditions, that on that day there will be believers, believers, Muslims, who end up in hellfire initially. Because even though they were Muslims, they had done evil deeds to the extent that they were initially placed in the fire. We know of course, that a Muslim, if because of his evil deeds, he ends up in the hellfire initially, eventually he will be, removed and entered into paradise, because all believers eventually get, go to paradise. But initially, it could be that a particular believer, a particular Muslim has done evil deeds in his life to the level, to the extent that he ends up being placed into the fire first, to be cleansed of that evil that he did, and then moved into paradise. So initially there will be some Muslims, some believers, because of their sins, initially they end up in the hellfire. So then other believers, they will intercede on their behalves. They will do the shafa'ah, the intercession on their behalves. They will go to Allah and they will say, Oh Allah, these people, they used to pray with us. كَانُوا يُصَلُّونَ مَعْنَا وَيَصُومُونَ مَعْنَا وَيَحُجُّونَ مَعْنَا وَيَتَصَدَّقُونَ That they used to pray with us, and they used to fast Ramadan with us, and they used to give charity, they used to do the pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj, etc. They used to do all of these worships, because they were of course believers, but they had done evil deeds, and they ended up in the hellfire. So now the other believers... Speak to Allah, telling Allah that they used to pray with us and fast with us and do worship with us. Of course Allah already knows that. Allah is aware of every single thing. But this is just to show the believers the virtue of Allah. That when they then seek intercession on behalf of their brothers and sisters, Allah allows that and tells them, Go and remove, go to the fire and remove from there anybody who has, even at the bottom of the narration, an atom's weight of Iman. If you find anybody in there who is a believer then, go and remove them from the fire. So then they go and those people, those believers are removed from their fire and they are placed into paradise. So that is another example of intercession happening on that day. How the believers will intercede... For other believers, they will intercede on behalf of their brothers and their sisters. These are all different types of (coughs) intercession. We've said before that for intercession to work, for intercession to be valid and acceptable by Allah, then it requires certain conditions. Those conditions are that the person who is seeking the intercession must be a believer upon Taheed, must be a person who worships Allah alone, singling him out without any partners or associates. The person he's making intercession for must also be a believer upon Tawheed, worshipping Allah alone, monotheism, not associating any partners to Allah. And it must be of course by the permission of Allah that they seek this intercession. This works in all of the examples we mentioned. But there is one example where those rules do not work. But it still applies. That is the intercession that the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, makes for his uncle, his blood uncle. Abu Talib. We know that this blood uncle of the Prophet Muhammad Abu Talib he died as a Muslim or not. He did not die as a Muslim. He died as a disbeliever. He didn't accept the message of his nephew Muhammad. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Even though we know the story. We all know the story of this uncle of the Prophet Abu Talib. Ever since the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, his parents died, his father died before he was even born. He was still in the womb of his mother. The mother was still pregnant and the father died. Then he was born and his mother died when he was only five, six years old. Both of his parents, the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, had died by the age of five or six he was. So then who looked after him after his parents died? His grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, Shaybatul Hamd. He looked after the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. But that that was only for another, how long? Two years or so. And then his grandfather passed away. So now the Prophet Muhammad was about only eight years old. And his parents had died, his grandfather had died. So who looked after him from that stage onwards? His uncle Abu Talib that we just mentioned. This uncle of his began to look after the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, from that stage onwards. From the age of eight or to nine. Took him into his own family, raised him as his own. So Abu Talib used to love him. And he used to protect him and keep him safe and look after him like his own son so the Prophet Muhammad grew up and grew older and older and older until he got to the age of uh, 40 Prophethood when he got to the age of 40 he got to the age of 40 at the age of 40 years old that's when the angel (coughs) Jibreel Gabriel the angel Jibril came to him. We know the Prophet Muhammad used to go to a cave in Mecca. There used to be a cave he used to go to. He used to stay there and reflect and contemplate and worship Allah. So on one occasion when he was 40 now, 40 years old, he went to that cave. The cave known as Hira. The cave, the name is Hira. So he went to that cave and he was 40 years old at this stage now and the angel Jibreel came to him. And that was the first revelation that Jibreel gave to the Prophet Muhammad the first part of the Qur'an was given to him then. Because remember the Qur'an it was not given to the Prophet Muhammad all in one go. It wasn't a book that came down in one go like that. It came down in pieces. Jibreel, the angel Gabriel, used to come down with sections of the Qur'an to the Prophet Muhammad He would memorize those sections, and then Jibreel would come again another time with another section, he would memorize that. Then another time with another section, he would memorize that. In all, the whole Qur'an actually finally completed after Jibreel had been coming to the Prophet for how many years? 23 years. Over a span of 23 years, section by section, Jibreel the angel used to bring down the Quran. So finally after the 23rd or 23 years, the last section of the Quran was given to him. He memorized it. So now he had the whole Quran memorized. He then taught his companions, his students. They memorized it they taught their students, they memorized it, and it went on like that, memorized by the people, and then eventually it was written down as well, from everything that they knew and they would memorized, even at the time of the Prophet Muhammad, they were writing it down. In case anybody thinks, well, was it just written down from memory then? It was written at the time of the Prophet Muhammad too, at his time, when he was alive, they used to write it down as well, and eventually they put it all together, into what you see now the Qur'an all combined together in one book as you see it. So at the age of 40, Jibreel came and gave him the revelation. That's when he became a prophet. At the age of 40, he became a prophet. And we know he died at the age of 63. So he was a prophet for the last 23 years of his life. At the age of 40, he became a prophet. What was the reaction now of his uncle Abu Talib? who had raised him from the age of eight for the last, how many years is that? 32 years? 32 years. He raised him for 32 years from a young boy. What was the reaction of his uncle Abu Talib now? Did he reject him or did he continue to support him regardless? He continued to support him. This is in the books of history, tells you everything. His uncle, even though he didn't accept it, he didn't accept and become a Muslim and believe and take it on board. But he supported the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, defended him. Even the other disbelievers in Mecca at the time, they used to obviously oppose the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu They opposed this message that he was giving them, and the message was basically. Worship only one God. Worship Allah alone. Forget these idols and statues and millions of things you have. There is only one creator worship Him alone. But obviously those people at the time, the Quraysh, as they are known as in Mecca at the time, they had been upon that type of religion where they worship multiple gods for years and years and generations. So they oppose the Prophet Muhammad. Abu Talib was with them. He wasn't upon monotheism accepting Islam, he was worshipping multiple gods like the rest of them. But, what became the reaction of the rest of the people against the uncle of the Prophet? They turned against him. Even though, was he a Muslim? Had he accepted Islam? No. So why did they turn against him when he was one of them? Of of the because of his support of the Prophet Muhammad, he was supporting his nephew upon his prophethood. He was calling to tawheed, calling to worshiping Allah alone, uh, uh, to abandon the worship of multiple gods, only worship one Lord. And Abu Talib was defending him in that. He was stopping the people from harming him. And they were trying to harm him, but he was preventing them from harming him. So they all turned against him, even though he was upon their religion. They turned against him. The point of all of that background was to highlight that in the end, when Abu Talib died, and that was approximately when the Prophet was around about the age of 50. Around about the age of 50. So now that means Abu Talib had been with his nephew for 42 years. So now, when he was on his deathbed, when Abu Talib was dying, the uncle was dying, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu Sallam, went to see him on his deathbed. And he said to him, Ya Am, O oh my uncle, with compassion, oh my uncle, because the Prophet really wanted his uncle to accept the religion, really wanted his uncle to accept Islam. He said, My uncle, la ilaha illallah, Kalimatan. Say La ilaha illallah, my uncle. Say the Shahada that there is none deserving of worship in truth except Allah. Say it now before you die. Become a Muslim before you die. But when he was trying to tell him that at his deathbed, his uncle was in his deathbed about to die, last moments. He was telling him, say, La ilaha illallah, accept Islam before you die, and that will bring you salvation in the afterlife. But when he was trying to tell him that who else had come to visit Abu Talib on his deathbed at that moment, two of the disbelievers from his friends. So when they heard the Prophet Muhammad, his nephew, trying to convince him to become Muslim, they countered that they kept saying to him, no, are you going to leave the religion of your forefathers? Are you going to leave the religion of your father and your grandfather, what they brought you up upon? Are you going to abandon the religion that we've been on for centuries, etc.? So then Abu Talib, he wasn't, he was like that. The Prophet Muhammad, when he heard them trying to do that, He reinforced the message again. He said, No, uncle, say La ilaha illallah. Say that there is no deity worthy of worship and truth except Allah. But then the disbelievers, they carried on trying to reinforce their message on him. No, stay on the religion you're on. That's the religion of our fathers and our grandfathers and our forefathers. Stay on those, stay on that same religion. Don't go into the religion of this man remember they all used to say Prophet Muhammad is a madman, he's a magician, he's this, he's that. So in the end, Abu Talib, what did he end up on in his final breaths? He said, that he's gonna stay on the religion of his forefathers. So he died as a non-Muslim. Even though he spent, how many decades? Three, four decades. Three or four decades defending the Prophet Muhammad, getting harmed himself by his own people for defending the Prophet Muhammad. All of that, yet in the end, he couldn't bring himself to accept Islam. And in fact, he wrote some poetry. There is a book by one of the scholars of the past, Ibn Kathir, al Bidaya wa Nihaya. It's a book which is entitled, The Beginning and the End. It's a book of history. In that book, he quotes some of the poetry mansub ila Abi Talib. This uh, shi'ar. He says in that poetry, Abu Talib says that I know that the best of the religions of mankind is the religion of Muhammad. An khayr Din al-bariya, dina Muhammad. But then he said لولا الملامة أو حذار was it not for the fact that I would get blamed, and I fear, I feel like it's an insult to my forefathers, then I would have accepted. So what prevented him? That what you may call nationalism, patriotism, to his fathers and forefathers, he said, it feels like it's an insult to my forefathers, for me to abandon their religion and to take on this new religion you're claiming. So he didn't do it. This nationalism, racism, whatever you want to call it, it prevented him, it kept him locked, and he didn't accept. So now he died as a non-Muslim. His uncle, the uncle of the Prophet Muhammad Abu Talib, that uncle died as a non-Muslim. <clears throat> but what did the Prophet Wasallam do for his uncle after he died? Do ask for He made the du'a, he made the intercession. And there's a story behind it, but just to get to the point, the intercession was accepted. We know that it's impossible to have a disbeliever removed from hellfire into paradise once you've died. If you've died as a disbeliever, then it's too late. So now Abu Talib, despite being the uncle of the Prophet, died as a disbeliever. So he wasn't going to be removed from the hellfire. But the intercession of the Prophet ﷺ was accepted to the extent that his punishment in the hellfire was reduced. His punishment was reduced to the lowest punishment of the hellfire. As a consequence of the intercession of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. So, you see now what this topic of intercession is. There are different types of this intercession that will occur. There are many other examples too. The intercession of your children for you on that day. If you have righteous children, there is one prophetic tradition, a hadith, when a man in paradise will be raised up in higher levels of paradise. Because we know paradise is different levels, higher levels. So a man, he will be raised up into higher levels. He will say to Allah, what did I do to deserve the raise in paradise? What did I do to deserve the raise in paradise? It will be said to him, because of the dua that your righteous child made for you. He had a righteous child, who used to supplicate, and ask Allah to have mercy upon his father, etc. Allah accepted that supplication, accepted that request, and as a consequence raised that man up into higher levels of paradise. So there are different types of intercession like that. We know in another hadith, the angels, the angels, they will intercede. They will ask Allah on behalf of the believers to get them to paradise too. Intercession of the angels, intercession of the believers for their brothers and sisters as we mentioned, intercession of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. When all of the people have done their intercession, and there's nobody left, Then Allah will say, now the angels have interceded, the believers have interceded, etc. The prophets have interceded. Now nothing remains except the mercy of the most merciful. And that is Allah. The mercy of the most merciful. And then all of the believers in the end, they are removed from the hellfire. Anybody who is a believer upon monotheism, worshipping Allah alone, no association of any partners, no son, no wife, none of those things. Allah, the one Lord, the creator, the provider, the sustainer. Then all of those believers who used to worship the one Lord, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they had that faith in their hearts, that iman, then they are removed from the hellfire and placed into paradise in the end. So these are some of the topics regarding the Shafa'ah that occurs on that day, of the intercession that occurs on that day. Any questions on the issue of intercession so far? Any questions on any of those topics we've discussed so far? So Muslims who committed sins... And of course, we all fall into sins. What will be the accountability for a Muslim who has committed sins during his life? Depends. تحت مشيئة الله. On the day of judgment, the accountability is done. Your good deeds are checked, your bad deeds are checked your good deeds are greater than your bad deeds, then you're saved. But if your bad deeds actually outweigh your good deeds, now is where the issue arises. Because now really you're deserving of going to hellfire. Because your evil deeds are more than your good deeds. But what if you were a believer though? Then like we just said, Even if you end up in the hellfire because your bad deeds were more, you were a believer at the end of the day worshipping Allah alone, then eventually you'll be removed. It's even possible, even in that scenario, Allah may still just forgive you anyway, and you go to paradise anyway. So, but that is with sins and major sins. As for shirk, polytheism, you begin to worship others alongside Allah, then that is the one sin that Allah has told us in the Quran He does not forgive. Inna Allah <laughs> an Allah does not forgive that you commit shirk, polytheism, worship others alongside him. Believe that he has a wife, believe that he has a son, believe that he has partners, believe that he has equals you worship others alongside Allah as gods, then that is the one sin that cannot be forgiven. If you do that, and you die doing that, without asking for forgiveness, then that type of person essentially dies as a non-believer. And will be in the hellfire forever. Because that is the one sin Allah does not forgive. Polytheism. Associating partners alongside him. Other sins that we do, yes we do sins. But if you do sins, then you're supposed to repent. Ask Allah for forgiveness, supplicate. And ask, pray to Allah and ask Him to forgive you for those sins. Or on top of that as well, do good deeds. Because if you do a bad deed, a sin, an evil, then you regret that. Do a good deed to wipe it out and to balance it out and to get rid of it. أَتْبِعِ السَّيِّئَةَ الْحَسَنَةَ مْحُوهَا follow up a bad deed if you end up doing it with a good deed at least to wipe it out so that is the state of those people on that day remember we said a long time ago what if somebody on that day has their accountability and their good deeds and their bad deeds are exactly equal now what will happen to them their good deeds and their bad deeds end up exactly equal so then what happens to them they go paradise, they go to hell. Where do they go? So they go to a place that is called Al-A'raf. And they remain in that place Al-A'raf for as long as Allah wills. And then they are removed and placed into paradise. Any other questions up to there? Mental illness, it depends. If the mental illness is such that the person is deemed as the state of majnoon, that the person doesn't have any understanding of anything, he is mentally incapacitated, then the pen is lifted upon him. If the person's state is that level that he doesn't comprehend and doesn't know he is uh, mentally incapacitated completely, then the pen is lifted. But that's different to somebody who's just depressed or things like that. That person is aware and he knows and he's capable, his mind is working, but just depressed. That would be a sin upon them. But if you commit suicide, it's not a sin that keeps you in the hellfire forever. It's a major sin. Suicide is a major sin, but uh, it's not shirk. Oh, ah. <coughs> uh, Most of you know, who does uh, black magic. What happens black magic is shirk it is polytheism and the person who does black magic is not a muslim a person who engages in black magic other types of magic then that is disbelief in islam you cannot be a muslim and do black magic that's mentioned in the prophetic traditions it's not allowed to get involved in magic and do magic on people and witchcraft anybody does that then they are not deemed as a muslim Mm. But apart from that Ruqiyah, Ruqiyah is okay isn't it? Ruqiyah, Ruqiyah isn't magic Ruqiyah is allowed Ruqiyah when you recite the Qur'an Those things that's allowed Zamzam no. water yeah. <coughs> Some people say that you have to stand up And drink it face in the cup Is there any proof for this? Um I can't remember the authenticity. There are narrations, but I can't remember the authenticity. We'll check. We'll check the authenticity on it. Anything else? Oh, there's a question know, here. Last question. Oh. Uh, <coughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of them, you, know, you know, like the mass oh. A lot of them, they don't read uh, Alhamdulillah. They just read Subhanahu wa Allah. Is that allowed or no? The funeral prayer. So when a Muslim dies and you pray the funeral prayer on them, then uh, Al-Fatiha is supposed to be a part of it. There is, uh, upon some of the understandings of some of the Madhahib, where they say you don't have to recite Al-Fatiha. But that's not correct. Al-Fatiha should be read. Are you talking about out loud or to yourself? No, no. You know To yourself? Yeah. Yeah, you should read Al-Fatiha. You have to read Al-Fatiha. There's a question here too as well. It says, I heard from someone that if you do wudu at home and have intention in the heart, that you will go to the masjid and learn... And do khair And do good If you do this You are rewarded A complete hajj reward sheik al-Bani authenticated this So I don't know What the question is Is this authentic?
1: Yeah. And
0: then you ask the hadith And then at the bottom sheik al-Bani authenticated it I'm not gonna not authenticate it <laughs> <laughs> So if sheik al-Bani Authenticates it Nothing for me to say? Five. Nothing else for me to say? Alright we're gonna round off there then Any other questions? Anything else?